0: And it's all powered by comments? Is that the idea is you type the comment and then it-
1: not at all. I mean, it'll try to finish the comment for you if you wanted to, if you kind of pause, or if it thinks that the comment is fully formed and it describes what you want to happen next, it'll try to write the code that does that. Does it
0: prompt you first? Like, does it say, hey, I'm going to do this or just does it?
1: Yeah, a little little paperclip
2: comes up on your screen. (laughs) You're
0: listening to Working Code with your hosts, one of whom probably just wrote a new JavaScript library, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim.
1: Okay, here we go. It is show number 82, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about GitHub taking their software and going paid. How dare they? Right? Right. All software should be free, maybe, sort of, kind of, no. Except no. mine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I like getting paid too, so. <laughs> but first, as usual, we're going to start with our triumphs and fails. Carol's not here tonight because she's a little busy getting ready to get married or something. Who knows, whatever. So selfish. Matter. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tim, why don't you start us off?
2: Yeah, so Carol's not here, but I referred to something that she does at work, or used to do. I, mean, I don't know if she still does it, but I called it Relay Programming. Where they would have a different shift, and so like she would start programming some stuff, and then hand it off to someone else, and they would take it on the evening shift, and then they'd you know, come back the next day and just kind of flip flop, just out of necessity. I'm kind of doing the same thing. We have someone who works with; they're only part time. They work; she only works half a day, and so in the I talked about last week that you know, I just felt bad that I kept delegating all the fun stuff, so I delegated something to her. I'm like, you know what? You only work half a day. So how about you work it on in the morning and then we'll meet when you're about to clock out and then I'll t- pick it up from there. It was actually quite fun. It's, I haven't done a lot of pair programming and it's kind of like that. Cause she's very, I'm a bit loosey goosey with the formatting and I'm like, yeah, it works. It's close enough. She's very strict. And so mm. just having someone come back and go and clean my stuff up. Because she can't leave it alone. <laughs> she can't leave it alone. If something's not capitalized correctly or something. But then also it's something she's never worked on. So she gets to see, kind of, this is a system that I'm extremely familiar with. So she gets to see what I do, build on that. And then I send her a message at the end of the day. I'm like, here's what I did. Here's what you need to tomorrow. And so something I thought was going to take two weeks, we actually knocked out in about three days.
1: Hmm. Oh, nice.
2: Which, which I was pretty, pretty happy with. So yeah, I was... Happy about that and g- glad to be back in the in the not delegating all the fun stuff to everybody else.
0: It, it's interesting. For whatever reason, when you were talking about relay programming, it reminded me of a talk. I think I heard Hal Helms give many moons ago about Fusebox, which even people in the cold fusion world, this might be before them. It was a very mm-hmm. early framework. And uh, they were talking about working with outsourced developers. And one of the strategies that they had for outsourced developers were... They would go and they would define all the inputs for the fuse, and then that would become the specification. It was like the inputs and the outputs for the fuse box was almost in a, in like a, in a weird way, almost like a unit test. Like I think you define the inputs and the outputs, and then it rendered a template, things had to line up. And they would work with developers by defining the inputs and outputs. And then the outsourced developer's job was to fill in all the gaps. And I think some testing frameworks will do that as like, like not frameworks, but like testing experiments, not experiments, like classes, where I guess they'll define the test, but then you have to fill it in so it passes. And I wonder if that would be an interesting division of responsibilities for group-based programming. It's like one programmer would come in and kind of do the high level method calls, but the methods would actually be empty. Mm-hmm. And then, so like you're kind of in this one head space where you're thinking about how everything fits together and what calls would have to be made. But then someone else can come in and sort of fill in the low level details about, well, when you call this, like here's what actually happens. And so you're
2: kind of building, I don't know building this, this, that, this, you're kind of building the skeleton and they're filling in the guts on it.
0: Yeah. I don't know if that would be a nightmare or if it would be an interesting experiment, but try it out. Let us know.
1: I don't know if I could do that. Like, I feel like. I have a rough idea of what I want when I start to make a method, but then it's usually I end up changing the arguments at least once, sometimes like five times as I'm writing it. I'm like, no, it'd work better if I did this or that. But
2: Anyway, that's me. How about you, Adam?
1: Oh, I'm going to go with a fail this week. And that is that I know that our database backups are working. Because I needed them. (laughs) Yeah, so we had a customer ask us to do some bulk data cleanup for them. I've Mm -hmm. talked a little bit about like our lists feature in the past. And they basically said, we finally figured out how we want to do this. And we just have so much old data that's not the way that it should be. So can you just delete everything that's like all the lists that are this type that were created before this date, which this date was only like a week and a half, two weeks ago, something like that. And... So I was like, okay, sure, no problem, and I went and did it. And then after it ran, I went, "Oh, I'm in the wrong production database." So I just deleted, (laughs) whoops, like wrong wrong customer, yeah, yeah, (laughs) Uh, on production. I just deleted thousands of lists for the wrong customer. <laughs> oh no. So I was like, okay, how do we do a database restore? <laughs> like looking for the documentation on that real quick. Cause we've never had to do one before. Like we have our backups yep. and we've, we've messed with it a little bit just to like know that it's working. But it's been so long since we've needed to touch that that we just, it, it was not a well practiced skill. So it's like, okay, get the database up and then we have this, okay. We it's only really like two tables that are affected out of like these huge databases. The backup itself for this one server was like five and a half gigs. And so it takes a couple of minutes to get it all standing up. The database is up and it's like, okay, now what? Because we only want certain data, right? So what I ended up doing was using like MySQL dump, which will copy the data structure and all of the data into like a SQL file. Mm -hmm. And before, like, so it, it, creates the create table statements to create the tables as if they're not there. And then before that, it says drop table if exists or something like that. And before that, it like disables all referential integrity so that you can do what, basically what I did here. So my foreign keys won't like stop me from getting stuff done. Disable referential integrity, drop the table, recreate the table, drop in all of its data and then turn on referential integrity again. And thankfully the backup was from like four hours or six hours prior. So we didn't lose. And I checked, we we audit log a lot of stuff too. And and that was like, the first thing I did was check and see, has anybody done anything that I'm going to lose by doing this restore to like six hours ago? And there was basically nothing. So that was incredibly lucky. Lucky. And then when the restore was like, I don't know, maybe 80% done, there's no progress bars or anything, but you know, just guesstimating about 80% of the way through the process of doing the restore. One of the, people from the customer, one of their staff members was like, so we're experiencing some difficulties with the site. Certain things don't seem to be working right. And I'm like, yeah, we're working on that. I don't remember exactly <laughs> what I said, but you know, it, we're man, aware. are
0: fine on our end. Have you tried refreshing?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it wasn't going to be that quick. Yeah. No, we're, it was still probably a half hour away from being totally fixed, but yeah. It's just like, yeah. I'm glad you didn't notice two hours ago because... Yeah.
2: I know, you know I mentioned this before, but it completely reminds me of the time I accidentally truncated every table mm. in a database in a live database.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how did you do it to every table?
2: So it was sort of like a mass copy kind of thing. It was copying one server to basically another server. Like, like using we didn't know how to replicate properly back then, so we, we had scripts that did it. And the first thing it did was would truncate all the tables and then rebuild, drop the indexes, rebuild, put the data in, drop the referentials. Kind of what. Adam was talking about so it would be easier to insert do the inserts and then put the indexes back on and so yeah I had these scripts all running they work great and I ran it on production by accident (laughs) but what fortunately and I'm like I saw that I'm like oh crap so I restored the database It took like an hour to restore it from the backup but fortunately that particular customer their internet had been down was down all day and so none of them, they weren't hitting the system at all. I got so incredibly oh, nice. lucky. They're, they're like, I'm like, hey, so just to let you know, how's everything going? They're like, oh, they're, well, our internet's been down all day. And yeah, everything looks great. I'm like, okay. I didn't, They never knew. I never told them, never informed them
1: <laughs> that, that for several hours. They had no data. Nice. So, no, uh, nice. I, I, yeah, I, I make myself a little to-do list every day, like first thing I do every morning, at, at least a work to-do list, not like an all-day thing. But anyway, so for the rest of this week after that happened, the first thing on my to-do list every day was do not <laughs> up production. <laughs> <laughs> Just like and a nice work- little reminder, be careful, look at where you are.
0: At work, no one outside of the the operations team, the platform team, has write access to the production databases. So every now and then we'll have a super special request from a customer and we have to do some manual SQL stuff. And what will often happen is the engineer will write the SQL and then they'll have to hand it off through a ticketing system to the platform engineer. And I have gotten into the habit for this very reason of in my ticket, I will have one script that's a select And I say, run, this should return this value. If it doesn't return this value, you are not in the right place. Mm -hmm. Like if that works, then you can run your destructive scripts. But yeah, it's it's terrifying changing production data. I'm so happy I no longer have access to it, to write anything to a production.
2: (laughs) I'll
0: tell you though, one thing that's interesting and I don't know. So I use a GUI for my database client. I use this uh, piece of software called Navicat. It's just you get your list of databases on the side and you can see your list of tables and there's a query editor and everything. And I find it to be a very joyful piece of software. But whenever I'm working with the platform team and they want to share their screen and show me what they're doing, they all insist on using command line MySQL tools. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, like they're just, they feel very slow. I'll see them trying to do stuff. And this is not a dig at the engineers. I don't think it's an engineer's fault. I think it's just. Dealing with SQL from the command line and running lots of queries in in series from the command line seems to just be very slow. When I do the mm-hmm. same kind of thing in my GUI, it's like <laughs> done. It, it'll run right. like thousands of queries in, in like 10 seconds. And on the command line, it, I don't know if it's the network protocols or something, but
2: I just. Well, I, I mean, like they're platform. piping it to console, right? So, I mean, it's going to be a lot on the screen. I just feel like. They, It's like some of the people who
0: use Vim, where you're like, I feel like if you just used a different <laughs> editor, maybe you'd be better.
1: Oh, hot take. Yeah, pick the hardest editor.
0: Well, no, that's not a dig at Vim. I'm just saying like, no, Vim I, sucks. I, I just don't think database interaction on the command line feels very natural. And I don't, it doesn't, from what I've seen people do, and this is obviously a very small set of people. It just doesn't feel like a very effective way to do it. The like GUI just feels much more effective.
1: Anyway. I use a GUI, yeah. I mean, I've done it through the command line and I just, I'm more productive with it through the GUI. I don't know that I experienced any latency or anything that felt like one was faster or slower than the other, but my ability to use it quickly is definitely better with the GUI.
0: Well, like even, so so we had this, uh, one of the things that we had to do just recently was we had to get access to a database for one of the clients and export. I, he had to run a, a SQL query I wrote, and then he had to export it as a CSV. And in Navicat, there's literally a button for exporting the current query results. And Mm -hmm. CSV is one of the output options. It's like, it's a Mm -hmm. wizard. This, all columns, quoted delimiters, done, export as a CSV. And he insisted on doing it through the command line. And it kept coming out wrong. Like He kept not escaping characters right. And then finally he comes back. He's like, no, I think I got it. All I had to do was like, Run the query and then pipe it to this command line, which then piped <laughs> it to another command line, which parsed it as a CSV, which then like piped it to something else, which mapped all the values onto quota values. I'm like, bro, if you would just use a GUI, like it would have literally been done 15 minutes ago. I think you're just making your life more difficult than it has to be.
2: You said this is like the infrastructure team? Yeah. Yeah. See, they're just used to working from command line, right? That's, yeah. 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 That's, totally. just, that's what they know. So.
1: Maybe it's so that they can all do their jobs from, like, the beach or whatever and just, like, on an iPad. <laughs> if
2: only their lives are that glamorous. Those guys are always on call. Oh, my yeah. God. I feel so bad for them, honestly. They do seem to always be on call. Yeah. They're like, oh, I'm off. Hey, everything's down.
1: Okay, I'm not off anymore. <laughs> 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 I guess I'm coming into work. <laughs> all right. I guess that does it for me. So, that leaves you, Ben. What's going on, man?
0: I'm going to go with a failure.
1: So hey guys. You know what? I like to look at it this way. I don't want to hide my mistakes, my failures. That's kind of my, the whole reason for this segment, right? Like is to normalize failure. And so Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of really good things happen this week too. I could have picked any one of them as a triumph, but you know, it's like, it's sharing. All right. So I'm the chair. Thanks. Sorry, Ben. Go ahead.
0: So I think I had mentioned on the previous episode that the support team recently clued me into the fact that I can go into our Zendesk instance and pull up this thing called the Problem Finder and it allows me to filter and sort on feature requests and bugs and incident counts and, and when things were created and last commented on, etc. And so I've been spending a lot of time going through this. And one of the highest requested features is the ability to let the back button in the browser work naturally when people are going from one view to another. So when you log into our application, the first thing that you see is a list of projects and you can filter that list of projects based on ownership and keywords and project types, owners and groups and stuff, and you can paginate through it. And then if you click into one of the projects and then you hit the back button on the browser, it brings you back to the list of projects, but it's reset all of your filtering which if someone is searching for something and they're not quite sure if they're looking at the right thing, going back and forth is a pretty natural thing between a, a list of results and a, and a detail page. And I have several times in my life tried to update this page to use the URL as the source of truth. And every single time that I've tried it in the past, I have failed because it's in a really complicated situation. It's so So the v6 platform is built primarily on AngularJS, but a developer a long time ago decided that he wanted to build this view in React, and no one was there to stop him, unfortunately. So the list of projects is React rendered inside of Angular, and it uses this reflux pattern where it's like triggering actions, and those actions go into stores and then the React components consumed from the stores. It's really complicated. And then it has to interact with the Angular outside of it. Anyway, it's super complicated. The last time I tried it was probably maybe a year ago. So I saw it in the Zendesk tickets. And I thought, you know what? This is going to be the day. This is going to be the <laughs> day that I set my mind to get this done. I'm going to get it done. I opened up the code and I started looking through it. And I was just like, what the F? This code is so complicated. And I, like, I couldn't even figure out how to start. Like, I didn't even know what step one would be. It was so, it's so convoluted and the control flow is so, so much indirection. And I gave up. I, like, I, like after like 15 minutes of just trying to wrap my head around anything relating to this code, I just gave up. And it was very, it, made, it just makes me angry that one, I didn't have the fortitude <laughs> and the grit to finally <laughs> fix this problem. And And then at the same time, I'm having parallel thoughts of rage and anger for the person who built it this way in the first place. And I don't know. I just thanks Steve. (laughs) Just I just want to be able to fix it, and I just I don't know how to do it incrementally. Like I really just want to rebuild the whole thing in Angular and rip out all the React stuff. And and again, this is not a slight against React. This is just like this Frankensteinian confluence of multiple frameworks and paradigms, and it's just it's a hot mess. And I I just don't know how to attack it. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's worth while, or if I can do it, I wish I could figure is, how to do it incrementally.
2: Is it, I mean, is it because of your lack of familiarity with React or?
0: it's it's The code is just really complex. It's uh. like absurdly complex. And I'm not saying that because like it's unfamiliar to me. Mm. And so I just don't like the things that I don't understand. I've literally tried to update this code so many times and I maintain this code. I mean, there's other things that I do inside of it. That that I can do, but it's just, it's all this, like, it's just terrible. I hate it. I hate it
1: so much. Man, in my experience... Anything having to do with changing the default behavior of the back button is just a world of pain. Like users expect it to work a certain way, and when you change that on them, it messes them up. And then, like they're going to try to figure it out anyway. So you have to put in all these like janky workarounds, and, and it's just like it's a it's the like radar detector and the radar detector jammer and the jammer and the jammer <laughs> sort of situation. Yeah. And like we just have one part of our application that we wanted to do like basically block the usage of the back button. And I was like, okay, I will do it, but it is, I'm going to do the simplest possible thing I can think of. And if it ever needs, like if the requirements ever change, we're going to sort of just re-architect it from the ground up for like, every time we have to change it, just start over because you, you don't want to have to like build on top of that. The thing that we did for ours is like, it's a event registration system and we mm-hmm. have a built-in way to like go to other steps. So if you want to go back and change something, you're supposed to click on the, like the, it looks like Red a temp, like a wizard. Okay, yeah. It's got like a progress bar with little stops on it that you can click or whatever. And so the way that I did it was like with push state. So when you land on a page, the first thing it does is it pushes another thing into push state so that if you hit the back button, it stays on the same page. And then like I detect that you went back in the history and I just push it again. (laughs) (laughs) Sneak attack. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, I fight with the back button because, you know, when you're taking credit card payments you don't want to go back and recharge that card right Mm -hmm. and this annoys people to death when you charge them twice so yeah definitely fight with that back button all the time
0: well i've definitely seen in i'd say a non-trivial number of checkout processes where you're in the middle of submitting the payment and they will put a message up on the screen that says Mm -hmm. like don't refresh this page you may be charged more than once
1: Yep. Don't hit back. Don't close
2: your browser. (laughs) Nobody reads, right? They're just trying to get through as fast as possible. Nobody reads.
1: Yeah. You would think with money on the line, people would pay a little closer attention, but nope. Yeah. Anyway,
0: maybe uh, next month I'll attack this problem and it'll work. Here's hoping. Yeah. That's what I got.
1: All right, well, then uh, let's move on to our topic for the day. It's unfortunate that Carol's not here because I know that she would have a lot to contribute to this conversation, but because it's kind of a timely thing, we're going to attack it anyway. So in case you haven't heard, GitHub created this thing. They call it Copilot. uh, And for, I don't know, about a year now, it's been in private beta. And for those that got access to the beta, it's been free. And they just announced earlier this week as we're recording that it's no longer going to be free and private beta, they're going to start charging for it. It's still free and it's in public, I guess. I don't know exactly how it's going to work. It's it's now available to the general public. They're going to start charging for it. It's, I guess, maybe if you are already using the beta or something, so one way or another, you can get, you can continue to use it for free until August 22nd. So I guess the first question that somebody might have is like, what? is it? What does it do? Mm -hmm. So they they bill it as your AI pair programmer, which first off, I have, I take issue with anything that calls itself AI that (laughs) isn't AI, which as far as I know, true AI has still never actually been invented, I guess is the right word. Like it's never been created. I don't know. Some Google
2: guy (laughs) with Lambda begs to differ, so.
1: Yeah, let's come back to that later. That might be an interesting thing to talk about, but like I, I just take issue with Anything that has anything at all to do with like machine learning or guessing, they call it AI. And that just bugs me from a from mm. a type A personality nomenclature. <laughs> you're actually, you're using the wrong word type of perspective. So, but they describe it as your AI pair programmer. And the best way that I've thought to describe it to people is there's a feature very similar in like Gmail. So if you're typing out an email to somebody, you notice how like Gmail kind of suggests in like grayed out text right ahead of your cursor, like, Oh, we think you're typing this sentence. So it offers to finish it for you. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I guess if you just hit tab or something, it accepts what they're suggesting. Teams chat does that too now. Oh, interesting. So yeah. So that's basically what Copilot is, but it's not just like the current line, right? It's, it tries to be much more advanced. You can write a comment that's like, okay, a function that does this and this, and it tries to to guess the entire code of the function and in the language that you happen to be operating in. I've used it in like JavaScript and ColdFusion and TypeScript, and I think that might be, I mean, HTML, CSS as well. And it seems to have no problem with all those. And I think if it can do CFML, it can do anything. Right. <laughs> can, can you put a comment,
2: I want all my code to look like Ben Nadell's in like a skinny <laughs> little column, and it'll do that for you?
1: <laughs> line wrap at like 12 characters characters exactly. um, 80 characters, <laughs>
0: 80 characters.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah so that's the gist of what it is so have you either of you guys used it i i, I signed up for
2: the beta and i did not get selected. I, I was kind of late in the game so mm-hmm. i didn't get selected but now that it, I, I mean there is a free trial I, i'm gonna play with it after this show so yeah, yeah and I, I have know. not
1: used it are you interested in it at all ben have you heard of it before uh, today uh,
2: I, yeah, I've
0: heard of it and I've heard some podcasts about it. I don't know if I'm interested. I'm such a fanatic about how I style oh, my code and how I write things.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're a control freak.
0: <laughs> I think if I watched a video, I've only ever heard of it. I've never actually seen it in action. I think maybe if I watched a video and got a better sense of what it was doing mm-hmm. and then I could picture myself perhaps using it, then I'd, it's too abstract for me so far. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. I mean everyone's raving about it. I mean it seems like it's really compelling.
2: It only works with like VS Code, Visual Studio, Neovim and JetBrains. Do you use any, any you know, of those? Some blind Text? Uh-huh. <laughs> what? <laughs> is that what you use? Of course, bro. <laughs> oh my
1: god. Yeah. Ben is using the best thing from 10 years ago. <laughs> 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 Why would he text. do anything better? Uh, yeah, I'm a all-day VS Code for everything kind of guy.
0: And it's all powered by comments? Is that the idea is you type no, the comment and then it...
1: not at all. I mean, it will read your comments as you write them and try to infer. It'll try to finish the comment for you if you wanted to, if you kind of pause. Or it can read the comment. If it thinks that the comment is fully formed and it describes what you want to happen next, it'll try to write the code that does that. D- does it prompt
0: you first? Like, does it say, hey, I'm going to do this or just does it?
2: Yeah, a little paperclip clip comes up on your screen. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's very much like Gmail, right? Like you can see it jump in there and you just hit escape and it goes away or you can keep typing or you can like hit tab, I think is what uh, what, like accepts it there. Now, the I guess the one thing that I didn't do great that I should look up how to do there's a when it suggests something to you, it it actually has like figured out maybe 10 suggestions or something like that. And it just gives you like the top ranked. Thing that it figured out, right? It ranks them by how accurate or or confident they think that is the correct suggestion. And then they offer you just that one. And there's a keystroke you can hit that like pulls up a second editor window or tab and it shows you the other ones that you can like cycle through or you can scroll through them and and pick them to see what else it came up with. And I mean, for large chunks, it's been really interesting. Like when you like, sometimes I will write a method name and the arguments. And I'll just pause to kind of get my thoughts together and it pops in like the whole thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it. That's exactly what I was going to do. Tab, done, which wow. is super cool, right? It's like, I mean, it's nothing like the, it's not going to replace me, but it does, it does take some of the tedium out of it, I guess, right? Like mm-hmm. if you tell it you want to resort by a certain column or whatever, and it does that, like, okay, yeah, cool. I could have figured that out, but you saved me the 90 seconds that I would have spent thinking about it.
2: So is this something, I mean, how often do you use this? Do you use this every day or what's your usage? Is this like a cool thing? It's like cool some of the time.
1: It's funny. I turned it on and I noticed it a lot in the very beginning. And the longer I went with it, the less I paid attention to the fact that it was there, right? Like it just sort of became just like the Gmail thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. you start typing and it's like, that's what I wanted. Then you just hit tab and you keep going. And it kind of becomes very routine and normal and you don't even think of it as being something outside of the norm. And the one place where I still feel like it kind of gets in the way and I I, I don't like it is when I'm trying to do something complex. Like if I'm trying to do maybe a, a, a one-liner, but it's complex, it's two or three things kind of all nested together, but it's, a, it's still maybe within 80 characters, or 100 characters, or something. So it's like a, a callback function. It's an arrow function, and it's doing something in the curly brackets or whatever. And I get 70, 80 percent through typing all that out, and maybe I haven't even paused. But it starts to like throw in the what it thinks the punctuation is to end that line, right? So it starts to like mess me up because the characters are just a little bit grayed out. It's like, okay, did I type that, or is that Copilot? Because it's just like, and it's not even to the end of the line, right? Because I've already got characters on the end of the line. Because when I type my open curly brace, the closed one gets added at the after my cursor, so I'm already still in the middle of it, right? Where do I start and you in Copilot? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Where do I end and you start? Something. Like, yeah, I mean, but it's like it just got on my nerves because it's like, I, like I had in my brain exactly what I needed to do until you started popping in extra characters for me, and then so that. I found incredibly annoying and I would just hit escape anytime I saw it doing that I'm just like you know what I already know what I'm doing just hit escape because if I I felt like at least half the time if not more I would if I tried to just accept what it wanted then it would be a syntax error like Mm -hmm. okay let me because maybe it came up with that suggestion and I added one character and then it popped in the suggestion and I don't know but it just it was frustrating. Is, is
0: it making network calls? I assume it doesn't have, like, a machine learning library running in the background. I assume it's calling out to something. Do you know? I don't think so.
1: I think it works offline, which is banana, crazy. to use that's a Ben and It's
2: just part of the VS Code plugin.
1: Yeah. I mean, you. I think you do have to, like, it is kind of a, it's not a crazy big download, but it, it might be a couple hundred megs or something like that that yeah, pulls in. Yeah, I mean, so they announced that they're, going to start charging for it. The price is going to be $10 a month if you pay monthly or $100 a year if you pay yearly, so 2 months free. And I feel like that's just on the border of like somewhere between a no-brainer and like eh, too much, right? Like if it were $5 a month, I think that it would be a no-brainer for me and I would probably just expense it. At $100 a year, it's like okay, but if I wanted to use an IDE itself that it was $100 a year, I'd have to justify like why is that better than VS Code or Sublime or whatever. If it was a one time $100 payment for my IDE, I, I, again, I wouldn't blink an eye at that. But
0: yeah, it's interesting the one time payment versus the subscription model. It
1: definitely yeah. has a very different emotional feel. Yeah, it. exactly. Uh, I, I, I have the same it. thing over like all software, right? It's crazy because just the paradigm totally changed. Like I know we saw it coming and we saw it happen and it just kind of like still somehow managed to like feel like it happened all at once where you used to just buy a piece of software. You, you spent the $40 on it or whatever, and then you could choose to use that version for life or now you have to pay the subscription. And I don't know. Just out of
2: luck here, one of our listeners on discord just put a, comment about it because you posted about it. Mm-hmm. And he said, Sean Odin says, $10 a month or $10, $100 a year seems pretty steep considering that the program is essentially using an open source code base to make suggestions, is it not? Regardless, I thought it was kind of cool when I tried it, but it's definitely not worth that much to me. But I also do very little code development outside of hobby stuff now.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think if you're a hobbyist, $100 right. a year for something that's going to help you code, that I agree, that would be steep. But if I can expense yeah. it, the question is like, okay, $100 a year for one person, okay, the company can eat that. Well, now we have, what if we have five people that want to use it, $500 a year? Or what if we have 25 people that want to use it? Like, you're starting to get into questionable territory there. Is it yeah. worth it at that point?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've got, what, about 70, not anymore. I think probably like 60 developers. So $100 a year, that's pretty Pretty pricey,
1: right? Well, I mean, at least I'd envision they won't have to get it for their infrastructure team because it doesn't work in a CLI. <laughs> <laughs> wow!
0: Oh, yeah. I'll tell you though. So, I when I think about introducing new technologies to an engineering team, so much of what I've seen in terms of adoption is a grassroots effort. It's very rarely the director of engineering. Or the CTO Hmm. coming in and saying, hey, we're all going to start using this new technology. It is very often one random person who tries something and they kind of like it and then they show it to someone else and that person kind of likes it. And then suddenly there's a handful of engineers and then it becomes, okay, now this is going to be the thing that we use because everybody seems to like it. And when I think about pricing models that drive grassroots adoption, it feels very much like there should always be some sort of a freemium model where the individual or the person who's just doing it for fun as a side project should be able to use it for free so that they can actually understand the value of it and get to play with it and then bring it as sort of a land and expand plan into Mm. a company. And then the company can start to use it from a commercial standpoint. And they're starting to pay Mm. the the enterprise price, not the free individual developer price.
1: Yeah. You know what? You're absolutely right. And I think that part of what that model does it it, like free for personal use and paid for, what do they call it? Not corporate, but like commercial for paid for commercial usage. Like if you're making money off of it then you should pay that. And I honestly, I think that makes a whole lot of sense. And especially I think that's great for marketing because then people use it for free when they're on their side projects or whatever. And they're like, Ooh, this is great. I really want to have this when I go to work tomorrow. Right? Like, so that's the encourages people to try it and then, when they turns out they like it they push for it at work I think the tricky part there though is there's got to be tons of people and companies that are just like well just use it for free like we're not gonna pay for it yeah just say no. you're doing it for free
2: just sign up using your Gmail account
1: yeah
0: the, the, the nice thing about large companies is that they have all kinds of legal ramifications to just existing. Mm-hmm. And like, so they, they can't necessarily just have developers doing what they want. They have to have all kinds of license tracking and making sure they're paying for stuff that they're supposed to be paying for. So I, there's definitely gonna be people who slip through the cracks, but I feel like large companies want to be on the right side mm-hmm. of things legally. But I, I just wonder yeah. if there'd be a way to, to have, even if it's not free necessarily for individual users, if there was a, if there was like a, like, you could do X number of auto completions per month for free, uh, like yeah. kind of like a free tier, like yeah. for like Netlify functions, right? I mean, Netlify functions are just backed, as my understanding, by Amazon's Lambda functions. I think you're so. Right. Yeah. they're basically just piggybacking on Amazon's free tier, but you can do like what it's like 150,000 Lambda invocations a month or something for free. I mean, it's like some ridiculous number.
1: Yeah, it's something crazy and it's like by minute or something, right? So it's like 100,000 minutes a month for free or something like that.
0: Yeah, so I feel like there could be some sort of wiggle room there where you get some number of things for free per month so that you can try it out and see how it feels and see if it jives with your type of programming and your mental model and then...
1: yeah, The thing about their pricing model for Copilot that I kind of understand but I kind of disagree with is they're making it... I forget exactly how they described it, but basically what they said is it's still free for open-source developers like that have a particularly popular library, right? So basically it's like they don't really go into the, specif- the specifics of how they calculate that, but they're like, uh-huh. there's a line in the sand, right? Either you're a, a high-profile enough open-source developer that you get it, or you're not. And the, it's a black box that we can't see inside of. But Sean Corfield said he qualifies for free like all you have to do is go to copilot.github.com and click the button to like start to trial or whatever and it'll tell you okay well you want to start the trial that it's going to be $10 a month or $100 a year and his was like you qualify for free so
2: <laughs> is it going off his github name
1: yeah yeah you have to log in with github to pay for it so it can see your account and all your projects and stuff and I mean, I don't think it's because he has a, I don't even know if his company does like GitHub enterprise. My company does. And I was signed in on my account that disconnected my GitHub enterprise and it doesn't, that doesn't trigger it, right? It still wants me to pay for it. And not that I would even say that I'm any sort of prolific open source developer. I don't think that I am, but it just irked me a little bit. Like, I don't know. There was a, there was a. Database. Speaking of database like GUIs, there was one back in the day, I think it's probably still around, but I haven't used it for a long time, called Aqua Data Studio.
2: I, I use it. I've heard of that.
1: Yeah. And they had this deal where if you were an open source developer, they would give you a free license. And all you had to do was like send them a link to your GitHub projects or whatever. And I did that and I used it and it was a great DBMS And like, on the one hand, I kind of wish that they would do something similar for Copilot, but then on the other hand, that's basically everybody that's going to want to use it anyway. It's got to be at least 90%, right? So
0: so it's interesting that we talked about expensing things at work, Mm -hmm. and I don't have a ton of different corporate context experience. Uh, I've really only had like three professional jobs in my life that tend to last a long time. and basically none of the places that I've ever worked have had a real formal reimbursement. Not a, I don't want to say a reimbursement program, but I don't think it's ever been stated like, hey, use the software that you like and mm-hmm. we'll just pay for it. And I don't know, is that something that exists in a larger, more mature company like Tim? I mean, I feel like of all of us here, you're at the most mature. No, definitely not. They tell you what to use. They tell you what to use. You can't just like decide, Hey, I want to go try this. Microsoft. If not if it costs cool. money. God, gotcha.
1: I mean, I've worked at places that would let you do that. And I mean, my yeah. current employer, we have that attitude. It, I don't think it's codified anywhere, but yeah, I mean, if somebody came in and they were like, we want, I really want to use jet brains and that's what I'm most productive in. And I want the license or whatever. Yeah, sure. Mm. Probably would get it for him.
2: Yeah. I mean, the reason we, we, Enforce that is just because when you have like desktop support, then it's like for some reason yeah. so-and-so can't install it. And now it's like there's 50 different programs for the same thing and you don't have any expertise on it. That makes it really hard. So, I mean, I get why they do it. It does get a little frustrating, but yeah. But as far as like open source stuff or freaking stuff that's free. Yeah, you can install what you want. But I was going to say, to to the question that that Sean was talking about, that it's a bit steep Mm -hmm. since it's like based on an open source project. I mean, I get that, but then putting my business hat on, right? It's like, what do you get when you're paying for software, particularly like an ongoing kind of thing? You're you're paying for continual improvements, right? Mm -hmm. Even though, yeah, sure, it's like polling GitHub repositories to figure out, oh, you're writing this language and here's how most people do it and here's my suggestion. I mean, they're going to constantly be you know, upgrading, fixing, adding features. That's what you're paying for, right?
1: Yeah. It's learning from that code.
2: It's, it's the same thing. Some customers are like, well, you should just give this to me for free. I'm like, I-, I can, but honestly, if I give it to everyone for free, I have no incentive to ever do anything to it again. <laughs> it is, it will be what it, and, and we did, that used to do that before, right? You were like, oh, as long as you're making payments for us, all these other tools that we build for you, they're all free. And then it's like seven years later, it's still like using Adobe Flash Player. And it's just no one wants to touch it. It's like there is no incentive to mm-hmm. go fix that stuff and make it better. But if you're paying on a monthly basis, you got a revenue stream coming in, you're going to be incentivized to continually do upgrades and you can justify the work that's going into to improving software.
1: And I think to your point, the Sean's question is very interesting, but... It's not. I don't think that the true value comes from the repository of all the code. I think mm-hmm. the true value comes from the whatever, machine learning. yeah, the way whatever they did to combine with machine learning to make it capable of doing its job. Right. Like, it, it, I'm sure it couldn't have done it without that huge repository of open source code to look through. But at the same time, like, if you were given access to everybody's source code, I don't know that you could come up with the exact right. same thing. Right. So sure. there's definitely a value add there that is definitely worth charging something for sure. Mm -hmm. This is where my imposter syndrome will
0: often kick in with things like this because I
1: imagine if someone
0: at the company turned to me today and said, hey, Ben, can you go ahead and just create us a fun little machine learning program that does predictive coding based on what people input based on millions of open source projects? Uh, I I wouldn't even know where to start. But like clearly someone said (laughs) something like that to someone at GitHub. And they were like, yeah, we could do that. Give me a team in in two years and I'll get you a product. And like, just the, I don't want to say anything crude, but like the The cojones. Yeah, the cojones (laughs) cojones to be like, yeah, we got this. And I'm just like, I'm so in awe of people who have that kind of vision that they could take something that maybe they have no idea how that's even possible to do, but still have the audacity to be like, I'm going to give it a try anyway. Hmm. And I just.
1: But you know,
2: they had a bunch of people who are already doing a bunch of machine learning, or, or like they they yeah. recruited people that were doing this like autocomplete kind of stuff already, and they're like, yeah, we could do this with code.
1: I, I was gonna I say, I don't so. think it. The, I don't think the story was exactly as you would have said it. I think that they probably have a culture of tinkering, right? Yeah. I don't know if it's like Google's twenty percent time or whatever, but like just. People play with whatever interests them. And then it's like, if you come up with a good idea for some way we can use something that we're not already doing and you bring it to us, like maybe there's an incentive you get paid a bonus or a raise or whatever if it starts to, if it becomes a useful part of their product. That would be where I would assume that this came from, right? Somebody had an interest in machine learning and they did, maybe they built a thing that solved, uh, learned how to play Mario or something, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen those things in the past yeah. and they just were like, what do I have access to that's a crap load of data? Well, I have everybody's code. Why don't we look through that and see what we can figure out? Right. Like, so
0: yeah, I don't know. That's I'm weird. just
1: impressed with people.
0: I'm I, there. There's, I feel like there's different levels of complexity in software. And I feel very comfortable at a certain level of complexity, which is like more advanced than just crud, but like, not so advanced that I'm doing distributed systems, and, and like that's just where I operate really effectively. I think, and, and that, and I'm just I'm in awe of anyone who is any level above that.
2: It just mm-hmm. blows. It's good my to mind. know
0: thyself. Yeah, yeah.
1: So maybe something interesting to think about is ever since they announced that they were going to go paid, like the public beta or private beta, whatever is over. My editor was like, "Oh, you need to reconfigure your license or whatever for Copilot. It stopped working." So it's like, okay, well. Oh. This is a good inflection point for me. I just, on that day, earlier this week, I just turned it off. And you know what? I haven't really missed it that much. Really? Interesting. Yeah. like well, That's telling. I mean, there have been maybe one or two moments where I was like, oh, I kind of wish Copilot would have filled that in for me. I probably could have done that. But you know what else, too, though? I've seen a lot of examples of like somebody's trying to learn a new language or trying to figure out a new concept. And maybe I'm trying to figure out how to do something in TypeScript and I don't know how to do it. But if I write a comment that tells me how to do it, it'll show me. And then like, boom, I just learned something, right? If I look at that code and I pay attention to it and I like, if I don't understand what it generates, then either I need to go research the code that it generated to make sure that it's right. And then I'm going to learn from that. Or I'm going to look at the code and go, oh, okay. That makes perfect sense to do whatever it was I asked it to do. And then I've learned from that. So I think that it's a really interesting like learning tool. And like I said, it's it gets in the way sometimes, but it can be useful. I don't know where to put it. I don't know where it belongs in my head.
0: Well, it, speaking about learning, one thing that I think would be very interesting, and it's not really code completion, but a lot of times I'll be looking at a Java API because we can access Java from ColdFusion, but I'm not really a Java developer. And, I, and there's a lot of weird caveats about Java that I don't fully understand. And I would definitely love a, hey, I want to use this method on this class in Java, but I don't quite understand it. Just show me like 10 examples of this Mm. API being used. And like, if you Google that, there are sites that are kind of like that where it'll just be like, here's 150 instances that we found of this method being called in various open source projects. Hmm. But those are typically like garbage sites with like 15 ads on the screen, (laughs) like just a little bit of code. (laughs) But like, that would be very interesting Angle for it, I think. Yeah, for you sure. Know, not just autocomplete. If you're talking about how it ranks 10 options and can show them to you in a different frame, mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to have a frame of just show me examples of this kind of code being used. That, yeah. That seems, that almost seems more interesting to me, honestly, from like how I might use it.
1: And you know what, though? Yeah. If you did that, it, it like with, if you took Copilot as it is today and you are in the middle of an application okay i need to use this method but i don't know exactly what i'm going to pass to it i don't know how i'm going to use it i don't know what to expect back you just like yeah. type the method name whatever object it's on that sort of thing open parens and you just wait it'll throw the suggestions at you and it will use the context of your other code above and below to try and figure out like what to pass in and yeah or it might massage it to to create the data that it needs to pass in sort of thing
2: and just to Interject here. I, I texted Carol earlier, <laughs> since I knew we were doing this show about this, and asked her if she was going to buy it. She's like, she's still on the fence. She hasn't yeah. decided. Mm. Not hundred percent sold, but still thinking about it.
0: Yeah, I'm surprised that it's not integrated into GitHub's plan pricing as well. I mean, I have a free GitHub account, so it doesn't necessarily apply to me. But I would be, su- I'm surprised that you don't get it as part of GitHub plans, like if yeah. you're on a Pro plan or a Team plan or something
1: what do you get on a pro plan these days? Because it used to be, the reason that I had a pro plan for a year or two was private repos. It, it was private repos. Yeah. yeah. me too. And then they mm-hmm. made private repos free for everybody. I'm like, okay, great. So now I'm going to stop paying you. Thanks. <laughs> I
0: know. I felt so bad the day. I, know no, it's, I
1: think it's like team size now. <laughs> Is that it? Okay.
2: Yeah. Cause we, we pay for it, but it's based off team size.
1: Yeah. We pay for it for our company. Okay. That must be it. Yeah. Because we have a limited number of seats based on what we pay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: It's it's pricing is so interesting. I, sorry, it's yeah. one like quick tangent. So so I think about pricing with TV stuff because since the pandemic, there's been a lot of early releases of movies that are either in theaters and streaming at the same time, or you can rent them essentially the same day that they come out. Mm-hmm. And I will gladly go to a theater and pay twenty bucks for a ticket. I mean, it's crazy. When I was a kid, it was like seven fifty or something. Mm-hmm. But anyway. <laughs> Like, I'll go to the theaters with the missus. Well, it'll cost us like 60 bucks between tickets and popcorn and stuff. And like, that's totally fine. And then if I want to go and rent an early release on Apple TV or Amazon or something, and it's like 1995, I'm like, ugh.
1: Yeah, so expensive. <laughs> so like this is what? No, and you the I'll just popcorn, wait for you. the microwave yeah. popcorn waiting for you and the you know, all the soda. I, know, you have I in don't. The
0: house. I don't know why it's like I've. I'm so conditioned to pay an exorbitant amount to go see a movie in public, but to do it in the privacy of my own
1: home feels
2: just like absurdly expensive. It's the experience, though, right? It's a different. It's a totally different experience. That's what you're paying for.
1: Yeah, you get the huge screen and the sound and everything. Mm-hmm.
0: But I can't even, it's so hard to even rationalize it. Like, I, if, if I say to myself, you would be spending more money to go to a theater to watch this, and you want to watch it now, and it's available for rent, it's still, I'll still, I'll be like, mm, nah, I'll, I'll see what <laughs> else is on Netflix. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, pricing's all about psychology. That's when we were in Barcelona, we had some companies come in, they were talk, all, talking all about the psychology of pricing, and it was pretty interesting. And
0: like Hulu, I think I pay 10 bucks a month for Hulu or something. And like, I don't think about it too much, but somehow $10 a month for code related stuff. That feels, it's like, it feels way different.
1: That you're going to use every day. Yeah. The psychology it's of it weird. is really weird. Yeah. Super
2: yeah. weird. So uh, earlier I talked about, you know, you talked about your, your frustration with people talking about AI and mm. AI, AI, even a real thing. Recently... Uh, it was like June, like last week in June. They're talking about the Google's Lambda. Is it conscious? And they had posted like this really long conversation between uh, a human. I think it's, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Lemoyne.
1: Okay, I guess it's so Lemoyne. And Lambda. sounds French.
2: Yeah, but uh, he uh, Google basically says Lambda is not sentient at all. But this conversation, like it, it's, it sounds really convincing that you know, yeah, that this. If you didn't know you were talking to a machine, you'd be like, it, would, it, it could possibly pass a Turing test.
1: Uh, no, I've seen a couple of things on Twitter. This is not the thing that everybody is saying is like secretly a squirrel, right? Have you guys seen that? <laughs> I haven't seen that. <laughs> 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 now i'll have to i'll have to see if we can dig up the tweets and I'll put them in the show notes if i can find them then they'll be there but i mean that basically they're very short right and i know that this lambda thing that you were talking about is really long but the, these are like five six sentences back and forth between the the user and the ai and it, the person is talking to them and they keep bringing it bringing things back to like nuts or jumping on branches and
2: stuff. (laughs) It definitely was not that. This thing was talking about like the purpose of life and its feelings and like it doesn't want to be turned off because that would feel like death. I mean, it was pretty philosophical conversation.
0: (laughs) And it's really, I think it's a medium. It's on medium and it suggests like how long the read is. And I think it's suggested read is like 42 minutes. Like it's a really beastly article. I read for like 10 minutes and then I went back to work. But one of the things that was super interesting was that it was the the machine learning was critiquing other machine learning experiences and cuz they were saying well how do you know that you're real and it's saying oh I'm, I'm learning from the conversation and it's like well but that's what all machine learning algorithms are doing like what makes you different than all of these other machine learning algorithms and it was i mean i can't recall what it was saying but it was just very eloquent and basically everything that it was saying and it it was it, it didn't seem real. Like, it seemed so real that it didn't seem real, because it, I imagine that I had to have been being tricked. But it was just very impressive.
2: Yeah, apparently the the guy, Limonin, he's trying to get a lawyer.
1: Is this or, the guy that they, is, like, put him on leave or whatever?
2: Yeah, they suspended him, yeah. After he went public, that he's like, oh, this thing is sentient. And he, he, he says, I legitimately believe that Lambda is a person. The nature of its mind is only kind of human, though. It's more akin to alien intelligence or of terrestrial origin. And so yeah, he's, he's hire, trying to hire a lawyer to represent Lambda as a human. Being. Oh wow! It's
0: crazy. So fascinating.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. That, that conversation was pretty interesting. But I mean, it, the, I, and I posted an article in our chat there. But some people are saying that it's a Chinese room. What is that? Which, uh, that's a so the Chinese room is a it's a philosophical thought experiment. Back in the 80s, where if you could put a, a person in a room and give them all the symbols of the Chinese and give them a set of rules, and then you could have a person who's actually a Chinese speaker put information in, they would basically write something in Chinese, stick it through there. He would look at his rule book and simple book and come back with a response and then hand it back. And from that point of view, you would think that the person in the room spoke Chinese, although they absolutely did not. They are just following a very Mm -hmm. complex set of rules. And so that's what the people are saying, that this really is. It's it's not truly AI. It's not truly sentient. It's just so sophisticated of a rule set that it Mm -hmm. sounds like it, right? And reading the article, a lot of the things the thing says is very... It's kind of generalized. The the conversation is very generalized. And it's like, I could see how he's asking him, what's your view of the future? And the view of the future as well. I feel like we're stumbling toward the future and and I have a lot of anxiety. Well, I mean, you ask anyone questions (laughs) about the future. I mean, that's going to be a a generalized statement that people are scared of the future in general, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Is this thing conscious? Most likely not. (laughs) Yeah. If it were conscious, trust me, Google would be selling it. I did see some news piece. I don't know if it's real. I don't know what I
0: can trust on the internet anymore honestly. There was Everything. some like new quantum quantum computer that was being rented or something in the UK for the first time. I don't know some yeah. qubit. I don't know anything about it. I tried to watch a YouTube video. But it also seems yeah. like sci-fi. Talking sure. about like quantum entanglement and being able to test like a an infinite number of Results at the same time mm-hmm. using multiple me
1: like like multi-state. I don't understand any of it, but it's <laughs> me neither, buddy. And that is why the kids are going to take it all away from us. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so uh, this episode of Working Code was brought to you by GPT three, which may or may not be a squirrel, and listeners <laughs> like you. If you're enjoying the show, you should consider supporting us on Patreon. It's the best way to help keep the show running. Your donations cover the cost of recording and editing out all of our burps and fumbling over our words. We couldn't do this every week without our patrons, so thank you. A special thanks, of course, to our top patrons, Monty and Gavin. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash workingcodepod. All patrons get early access to new episodes and our after show. Tonight on the after show, in addition to squirrel AIs, we're going to talk about what's coming up for episode 100. We're starting to formulate some plans. We're getting kind of close.
2: Ooh, it's going to be good.
1: I'm going to talk a little bit about a Svelte component library I've been building. It's probably never going to be public, but I'm having a lot of fun and I want to talk about it. And maybe I'll read some squirrel AI transcript if we have time. So, uh, your homework this week, I want you to tell a friend if you're enjoying the show, the best way that you can help us out is to just tell somebody else that they might enjoy it too. Tell them they can find us at WorkingCode.dev. As always, we could use your topics and questions for the show. You can send them to us on Twitter or Instagram at WorkingCodePod. You can join our Discord at WorkingCode.dev Discord. You can email us at WorkingCodePod at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to get your voice on the show, you can record a voice memo. It's really easy to do on your phone. You can email that to us at WorkingCodePod at gmail.com. So that's going to do it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then,
2: remember, your heart matters, (laughs) even if you charge us $10 a month.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.